God, you should really let that out, Steph. You should write a paper. I will. Get it published. My take on red meat by Stephanie. (laughs) The vegetarian. Don't put it up your butt. (sighs) Welcome to Cancer for Breakfast with Amy and Steph. I'm Amy. And I'm Steph. try to make cancer for breakfast safe and comfortable for everyone, it may not be suitable for all audiences and is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We're not doctors. We didn't even go to podcasting school. <laughs> Hi, Steph. Hi, Amy. Happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month. Have you heard that June is Pride Month? I have. (laughs) Um, You are seeming exceptionally queer and informative today. (laughs) I've hoisted my rainbow flag and it is flying at full mast. Great. I love to see it. Um, Yeah. So we're going to jump into our queer episode. I don't know. What are we calling it? I don't know yet. We'll have to see. Something will come up organically, as it always does. I did want to just say, um, before we jive in, we freaking hit 5,000 downloads. Yes, we did. This last week. And we've soared through it. Our little baby is growing up. This little dumb little podcast isn't as dumb as we thought it might be. I know. We're doing it. And it's all because people have shared it, which is like the most gratifying thing ever. Yeah. Thank you. Please, please share it more. Tell your friends, tell your Facebook groups, your support groups, your newly diagnosed, your whatever is about it because it's all really been word of mouth. But yeah. So cool. Yeah. I'm proud of us. Me too. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So get us going, Steph. Well, It's Pride Month, as we said, and I feel like as somebody who is queer, but is really at the top of the heap, I am a cisgender white woman who is bi and has a ton of passing privilege because I'm partnered with a cis man. I really have to do the advocacy. It is incumbent on me to do the legwork to advocate for other queers who don't have it as easy as I do. Um, And there are a lot of people who are struggling within the cancer community because of marginalization and lack of access and poor outcomes and blah, 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 blah. It's just a whole big ball of wax. It's a waxy, waxy ball. (laughs) It sure (laughs) is. So here we are to talk about it and talk about how we can make it better for people who have it worse than we do. Mm-hmm. And I would really recommend any of you uh, cisgendered, straight, non-queer folk, as I am, to keep listening to this podcast, learn some stuff, and help to spread the message um, as well, because that's super important. This isn't just an episode for the queer community to feel like seen and understood and have a place to talk about it. It's to educate 
Yeah. I mean, this is definitely going to be preaching to the choir if you are queer. I do hope that you feel a sense of community because it is so important to me that we bring to the forefront people who are more marginalized in the cancer community. But um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we do have a pretty rad little gang going on all of the social medias. So if you look for like hashtags like queering cancer and LGBTQ cancer survivor, um, there are a bunch of, of hashtags that will lead you straight to people like us. Straight to Stephanie's doorstep. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I will swaddle you in my rainbow blanket. Do you want me to read one of these nice letters we have? I would love it. Okay. This letter is written by someone named A, they, them, age 32, and says, Dear Amy and Steph, what is the most frustrating thing about being non-binary with metastatic breast cancer? For me, the misgendering. Even though I am transmasculine, I get ma'am and she, her every single time I go into my oncologist because I don't pass. It even says I am non-binary using they, them pronouns on my file and no one looks. The only reason my oncologist and the nurses know is because I told them. Even then, my oncologist struggles and only one of the nurses remembers to call me A. It's draining because metastatic breast cancer doesn't discriminate. But the medical field does. Everyone assumes that if you have breast cancer, metastatic or early stage, that you must be a cisgender woman. What about the trans women that are women? What about the cisgender men? What about the trans men? What about us non-binary people? I could go on and on. The only good thing about being non-binary with metastatic breast cancer? Awareness. That's all I can bring to the table, but it's extremely important. We're all going to die of this disease, and if I can help bring non-binary transgender awareness to medical research, then maybe I'll help the next person struggling with how to fit in. Signed, A. Thank you, A. Yeah. That is such a fucked up situation to be in, Mm -hmm. to be there receiving treatment for cancer, and then also have to advocate for your basic humanity. Like, what the fuck, you know? Also, I I know from my trans friends, like, how hurtful it is to be misgendered just in regular society, like, at a coffee shop or whatever, where you're just, like, reminded that you might not be passing as well as you might like to. Yeah. But then to be in a medical setting for freaking cancer, which that on its own is just so much to be dealing with. And it seems like your only choices are to be the person who educates your provider if you have the energy to do so. And then the other option is just to be misgendered. Yeah. And those are both really hard and really awful. Right. And I feel like when you're seeking cancer treatment, when you're like interfacing with your oncologist and stuff, the most important thing that makes anybody feel like you're getting a high standard of care is feeling like you're being seen. By your provider. Right. And if they can't even get your name or your gender right, like, right, you are not being seen by that person. And that sucks. Yeah. Straight up. Um, I have another letter that is related. Oh, can I interrupt you? Oh, yes. Hells to the ass. There is this really cool person named Ray Spoon, who is a musician and a poet. 
and they have cancer and they have written a lot of articles. A lot of them are available on Medium and I'll post some of them in the show notes, but they have written a lot about this exact thing about having to advocate for yourself and hope that it kind of trickles down to other people. But Ray ended up having a conversation with their cancer center about the fact that on their cancer center's website, cancers were divided into men's cancers and women's cancers, Mm -hmm. which doesn't make any sense, Mm -hmm. period, but is also just not an inclusive way to set things up. Right. So they were able to, despite, you know, being in active treatment, have this sit down with people who manage this kind of stuff and make change for other people. And that website, I feel like, is just such an important representation of a facility's values. Like, that's where you're first going to interface probably with the center where you're getting treated. You know, I feel like we all look it up first and see Mm -hmm. what it's like. And if you're seeing something so dumb as like men's cancers and women's cancers, you're not going to feel supported right off the bat. Right. Ray has some really, really awesome things to say about this advocacy piece. But I wanted to offer a quote so that hopefully you'll look into it further and read some of their work. But they say, quote, self-advocacy is a product of being alone and cornered. Most systemic changes happen because of community advocacy. An all-out radical change to the medical system and society would require cross-community advocacy. The many groups of people being oppressed, joining forces, and learning how to respect each other would be an unstoppable force. And I feel like that really just touches on the fact that it can't be the responsibility of cancer patients to do mm-hmm. all of this like work. Like we really need a buy-in from healthy people and straight people and mm-hmm. stuff to have these conversations when you see something come up. Yeah. And the medical field, people who have been educated by their patients and do like feel the weight of the importance of this to also advocate like when they're in the board meetings and the yeah whatever whatever they do you know but, yeah, but like, to like bring it to to the powers that be that they think it's important totally i think that it's possible to have a cultural shift within an institution like a hospital some places that seems like a bigger step than others totally but here you know in seattle where i go most of the people from receptionists to providers have pronoun pins on. I would say like 75% probably. Oh. And it just signifies that like this is a conversation we're aware about. This is something that we want to respect. So if you do end up getting misgendered, you aren't going to feel like, oh, am I stepping into this really unsafe situation where I'm going to be outing myself and I'm maybe not going to get high quality care because of it? Yeah. Like in a A different area or a smaller community. Yeah, that can be really scary. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm really impressed that they wear those pins. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I am grateful all the time that I go to such a cool facility. (laughs) Go SCCA. Hell yeah. Um, Should I dive into this next letter? Mm -hmm. So... This is from a gal named Jay who just completed her mastectomy and chemo 
and is waiting to head into radiation. So she writes, I feel like y'all will probably cover most of the stuff I've encountered, but gender identity stuff has been really confusing for me as someone who is both queer and not inherently feminine diagnosed with a disease that has been feminized to the extreme, breast cancer. Meeting with plastic surgeons re my mastectomy was super hard because I wanted to be flat and keep my nipples and they acted like I was fucking insane and basically I was told that I could always come back if I decided I wanted implants. I think with these straight male plastic surgeons, it's like they're projecting their idea of beauty or whatever it is onto me. But like, dude, no, I know my body better than you and I do not want implants. So fuck off. When I'd bring up, why can't we just do something similar to top surgery and graft the nipple? They'd be like, because it's not the same. We have to remove all of your breast tissue. And I'm like, yes, bro, I know that. I'm just asking for a very minimal amount of creativity here. And in the end, my surgeon fully came through and did exactly what I wanted just without the help of the plastic surgeon. But like these appointments were weirdly traumatic for me. I'll add that the whole experience and the loss of my boobs, estrogen, baby making abilities, hair, etc. has definitely led to a lot of confusion and uncertainty about my gender identity, which is not the way I would have liked to have that discovery. But hey, you know, what can you do about it? Jay, she, her. So, yeah, that is like, she's just in the thick of it right now. Yeah. And I think that that is such a valid conversation to be having with yourself. Like when you take away all the trappings of what we understand as traditional femininity, maybe you feel a really profound loss like some people do. Mm-hmm. When they lose their breasts and they lose their uterus and ovaries, or maybe you feel unburdened by that and more able to explore your gender. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's so important that we don't rely so heavily on the gender binary because it doesn't allow for people to make that kind of exploration happen. Yeah. When we were hearing from Jay, I was thinking about she's someone that presents more feminine and right. And so the questioning she's getting when she's saying, I want to go flat. It is reminding me of like that thing that women who want to remain childless always say when they like want any sort of like surgery that's going to impair their ability to. Oh yeah. Like when you get your tubes tied or something. Right. Yeah. Like, well, why don't you just come back, you know, in 10 years? No, no, I don't want children, you know? And it's just like, they won't believe you. But also what I'm hearing is like, If Jay had been a trans man who is very much presenting as so and still asking for the to go flat. Yeah. It still seems like a struggle. Yeah, for sure. And we got another note from someone named Jean who says, I'm gay. And after my sisters were diagnosed in 2018, I chose to have a prophylactic mastectomy and I chose to go flat for many, many reasons. I'm very happy and comfortable in my own skin, but at times I do feel the stares. And then Jean goes on to mention like how hard it can be to get decent flat results, just like Jay said. And like you don't have to be a trans or a non-binary person to have gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. And if you do want to go flat and you don't have a good result or it doesn't look like your friend's top surgery, then that can bring about a lot of body dysmorphia. You know, like you can feel like this isn't the right body for you. And I think when we're in the queer community, 
we're so used to being like, rah, rah, top surgery. It's, it's affirming. And, you know, we pitch in for the GoFundMes for our friends so they can live authentically in the body that's right for them. And then to have the opposite feel true for you can be really confusing, I think. Mm -hmm. I think that too, another thing that Ray Spoon says about this kind of interfacing, like Jay described with a plastic surgeon, that was a traumatic experience. Ray says, cancer outcomes are measured in terms of survival rate over time. The usual factors of systemic oppression play themselves out in survival rates for marginalized folks within cancer statistics. The evidence of oppression being a deadly cofactor is easy to see. And like, obviously, as traumatic as it is to get that kind of feedback from your plastic surgeon, Mm -hmm. that is just one point on the spectrum of shitty encounters that queer people have Mm -hmm. that really can jeopardize your health. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people have, it's like a death by a thousand pricks. You have one crappy appointment and then you have another crappy appointment and Mm -hmm. it's like a snowball and you eventually lose faith in the system and you stop seeking appointments and you stop asking for help. And maybe you don't keep going to your follow-up appointments because you just don't want to deal with this bullshit. Right. And that's where we see poorer outcomes. Yeah. Or, you know, you're a non-cancer person and you don't want to go to screenings because just any of your annual appointments have been so negative. So missing out on like, you know, if you're a trans man and you don't want to go to or pap smear or whatever. Yeah. And then that's going to lead to getting diagnosed later, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that goes for any kind of cancer that deals with like our quote unquote private parts, right? Like breast cancer, cervical cancer, ovarian cancer, penile, testicular, anal, rectal, prostate cancer, like all of these, if you're already sensitive about your gender and you are being marginalized by the medical community Mm -hmm. or just even in your day to day life, like you're not going to want to sign up for more marginalization. It's not something that you want to seek out. And so that definitely leads to poorer outcomes in the queer community for cancer diagnoses. Yeah, it's a lot, man. It is a lot. And I think, too, it's just like Jay mentioned Breast cancer in particular has been feminized to the extreme. And so if that does not resonate with you, you also feel like an outsider in these communities. Right. I mean, it's too pink for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I'm a cisgendered female and it's too, it's too feminine for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all of the, like, save the boobies bullshit. Right. It really just, I think, furthers the problem for the most vulnerable who are non-binary cancer patients. Yeah, I mean, that's problematic for all sorts of people, you know? Yeah, totally. Even a, a straight female who wants to save her boobies might not be able to, you know? Yeah. And 100%. She's still worthy just, and she gets and to live hopefully longer. That's like but. the dirty secret of homophobia and transphobia is it actually hurts all of us. Ah. <laughs> you know, people of all kinds are hurt yeah. by hurt by that kind of shit. And so 
that's why I, I do think that it, it is incumbent on, on the straights to step up and try to break down some of these bullshit barriers. Yeah, I'm going to do it. Um, there was a big national cancer survey that happened, I think, over the past couple of years. And it was facilitated by the National LGBT Cancer Network, which is www.cancer-network.org. And it was over 2,700 respondents. And they asked all kinds of questions about just your experience with cancer as a queer person or as an LGBT person. And they are presenting the results of those surveys at their annual event, which is on June 30th. And I signed up for it. Mm -hmm. I'm really eager to see what these respondents had to say. I think part of what the LGBT Cancer Network is trying to do is kind of make a resource that is something they can give to providers for like professional development and stuff. Um, but I'm going to put a link for mm -hmm. the registration for this in the show notes too. I registered, it's free. And um, they say that it is the largest ever LGBTQIA plus cancer survivor survey. And they're excited, they say, to mm -hmm. share about the results. You're going to hear from survivors, the survey team, and just queer community members. So I'm I'm eager to hear what they have to say. I think that things are actually a lot worse than anybody realizes. Mm. And I'm hopeful that an LGBT organization is able to kind of ferret those real answers out to give a clearer picture of exactly how much harm is being done. Right. If anyone would know the right questions to ask, it would be an organization like that, too, to yeah. look for the problems. Yeah. And like what works? What doesn't work? I'm interested. Interested to see what they've come up with. Yeah, me too. Um, do you want to jump right into rats and then talk a little bit more after that? Yeah, I totally can. Because I'm really curious about what you have to present because there's stuff that I wanted to say, but I didn't want to spoil <laughs> if it's what you're covering. So I'm not sure. Let's do it. Let's um, parade out our little rat in a rainbow bow tie. <laughs> rat parade. <laughs> Okay, I, as somebody who, as I said before, is on the top of the pile as far as the queer community goes, I am going to talk about something that is pretty sensitive, and that is anal cancer. Ooh, this is actually something I was going to bring up when I said I didn't want to bring anything up because I didn't know what you were going to talk about. All right, that. well... I've been dying to talk about anal cancer this whole episode. Well, I'm your gal. Um, anal yeah. cancer is an interesting one. It doesn't get much attention for obvious reasons. It's a touchy subject. We are a prudish, prudish culture. But I mean, come on. In the general population, anal cancer is actually pretty rare. 
as far as cancers go, the incidence rate is one in 500 in the general population, which is very low as far as cancers go. Mm -hmm. But it's 35 times more prevalent in people who have anal sex with men. Mm -hmm. And obviously, there are a lot of deterrents to screening for anal cancer and seeking care for symptoms. There's fear, there's shame, there's embarrassment, stigma. And homophobia, just like straight up homophobia and transphobia. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are all barriers to people getting screening and care. Um, Here is the, the sticker. HPV infection causes the vast majority of cases of anal cancer. And HPV can be transmitted even through protected anal intercourse and through manual stimulation or just general skin to skin contact without penetration. So it's highly transmissible. And Mm -hmm. we all pretty much probably know that HPV is really common in the United States. Right. Um, Cervical cancer is another one, obviously, that we associate with HPV. And the cervical cancer incidence has decreased annually by over 1% each year for the past 17 years, which is phenomenal, really, when you think about how yeah. common cervical cancer once was. But um, the incidence mm-hmm. for HPV-related cancers without standardized screening, especially anal and rectal cancers, has increased dramatically and is projected to surpass the incidence rate of cerv- cervical cancer within five years, for only for certain at-risk groups, like the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. HPV is associated with more than 90% of cervical and anal cancers and 60 to 75% of vulvar, vaginal, and penile cancers. So these are still all the same cancers we were talking about before that have those, you know, kind of protective feelings about them. Like people feel very nervous to seek care, Mm -hmm. even screening around these body parts. Yeah. So the main reason why cervical cancer is declining is that it is the only cancer out of all the HPV-related cancers that has an FDA-approved and recommended screening practice that they've successfully integrated into primary care. It's the good old pap smear. So it's the only one. And that has totally driven the lowering of cervical cancer diagnoses. So pelvic exams obviously are challenging for transgender patients. Mm -hmm. Inadequate screening for cervical cancer is definitely linked to barriers that transgender folks face. Um, They just aren't able to access culturally sensitive healthcare, And so they're still at a higher risk for cervical cancer. Um, Transgender men are way less likely to be current on cervical cancer screening than non-transgender women. And individuals who have never or who have rarely been screened for cervical cancer are, this is like super obvious, but still I feel like people don't think about it in these terms. They're at the highest risk for progression of chronic high-risk HPV infection to malignancy, morbidity, and mortality. So clearly you're not getting screened. You're at a way higher risk to end up being stage four before you're ever diagnosed, you know. Mm-hmm. So all of that said about cervical cancer, moving back to anal cancer, just as 
opposed to this one that we've successfully figured out how to screen for. Mm -hmm. HIV positive men and transgender people with a history of anal intercourse are at the greatest risk for developing anal cancer. So there are some other risk factors like having had a transplant, having a weakened immune system for myriad reasons that unfortunately are also more prevalent Mm -hmm. in the queer community, like having HIV, Mm -hmm. having herpes, having hepatitis. I read that like 95% of people with HIV that have a penis have HPV infection or Yeah, I mean I I believe that's totally true because overall the the incidence rate of HPV in the general population I think is like 80%. Mm-hmm. It's super common. And so there have been some new recommendations pretty recently around anal cancer screening. And again, this info is kind of hard to get out there because people don't want to talk about it the Mm -hmm. same way that we talk about, you know, cervical cancer, which has been pretty at the forefront of cancer conversations for many years. Mm -hmm. The new recommendations say that all men, non-binary and transgender people who have anal sex with men, especially those who are HIV plus, be screened every one to three years, depending on their immunological well-being. And then HIV negative folks should be screened every three years. Mm-hmm. Does it say starting at an age or just once sexual activity begins? Once sexual activity begins. And then also just getting out the signs and symptoms of anal cancer is also really important. Those are bleeding from the anus or rectum, pain in the area of the anus, a mass or a growth in the anal canal, and anal itching. And so, like, some of these are really common. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like, they aren't getting talked about because, again, some of them come with a lot of embarrassment and fear and shame. Like, yeah. nobody wants to talk about their butt itching. But, right. like, real talk, like, you got to take care of your bodies, folks. Um, as far as decreasing risk goes, um, you need to stop smoking. Smoking is a huge risk factor. Mm -hmm. Safer sex, as safe as you can be. But like I said, HPV can be transmitted just through skin to skin contact and even with protection. Mm -hmm. Um, Getting screened on that timetable that they're recommending now and getting HPV vaccinated. So interesting thing about the HPV vaccine. It came out in 2006 and when it was approved, They said anybody up to age 26 could get it. But in October of 2018, U.S. health officials said anybody up to age 45 can get it. And that's been the standard now. U.S. health officials now have taken a further step and they recommend that anyone up to the age of 26, man or woman, trans, non-binary, everybody get the vaccine Mm -hmm. up to age 26. And then if you choose to, you still can get it up to age 45. You just have to test negative. Right. Yeah. So it's not a pleasant thing to talk about, but I feel like we've done a pretty good job about talking about cervical cancer screenings. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows about getting pap smears and pelvic exams now. And we just have to open up that conversation to some of these other cancers that could be caught earlier. And also we need to make it more accessible for people who are marginalized to seek screening and seek health care mm-hmm. when they have symptoms. 
like with cervical cancer screenings, you don't really get asked why you are asking for a screening because it's recommended and you're expected to like the hard part with that is actually getting people to show up and do it. Yeah. Uh huh. But I'm just thinking about how like if you're in a certain category that it's recommended, but then you have to show up to a doctor who maybe you don't have an established relationship with and then you feel like you have to like explain why you want this test and maybe it might feel unsafe depending on like what kind of place in the United States you might live for Mm -hmm. example or wherever yeah just a number of reasons you know but it's sort of another thing where if you are a part of this community you're expected to like come out at every appointment kind of do you know what I mean yeah 100% and it's just this constant vulnerability and you have to take it on faith that the other person has your best interest at heart and sometimes they frankly do not and so yeah I think that's why real systemic change is absolutely necessary so that we can get people in the queer community in the LGBTQ community the health care access that they deserve mm-hmm So cancer isn't such a blight on our community for no good reason. You know, like people have cancers that could be caught earlier Mm -hmm. and they end up dying because of the shitty care that they got. You know, the last time they tried to get care for something totally different. And then, you know, I mean, many of us have lived our lives this way where we don't go to the doctor for like four to six years when we're younger because like we don't have insurance. And I know... Too, I read something about how prostate cancer can like, like the treatment of prostate cancer can really affect the quality of gay men's sex lives too. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah, totally. That is true. Um, there's this website um, called prostatecanceruk.org and they actually have a really nice little pamphlet that you can download for free and I'll link that in the mm-hmm. show notes that is um, for gay and bi men about prostate cancer. Um, Mm -hmm. But a lot of this stuff makes total sense. Uh, Apparently, you know, when men are having penetrative sex, if you're a bottom, then most of the pleasure comes from having your prostate stimulated internally. Mm -hmm. And so if you get your prostate removed because it's cancerous, then you Mm -hmm. lose that pleasure. And so if you're a bottom, then it's like you're oh, mm, it's like a big deal. Yeah. And then also, yeah, if you have radiation for anal cancer um, or rectal cancer, we all know what radiation does to your skin. And mm. um, it tightens up so much that a lot of for a lot of people, anal sex becomes totally not doable. Comfortable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's definitely something that people have to think about when they're talking to their doctors about treatment and also just like a thing that probably a lot of doctors don't even consider when they're giving treatment options to their patients. Yeah. Yeah. Even to warn them about beforehand that it could affect that. Like if it's not like on the forefront of the person's um, fear. Yeah. Like, oops, you could completely lose the ability to have sex in this way. Right. That would be something they would bring up, I feel like, to a hetero couple or a hetero person. But probably for a lot of them, they're just not super dialed in for 
Mm. people who have anal sex. Yeah, that's a very big thing. And I mean, I can imagine like, you know, in the in the gay man world, sex is like quite important. And I mean, for the cancer person's partner too, you know, absolutely not just the patient themselves, which is added just like a whole other pressure to that cancer person to have to like navigate and deal with. Yeah. And then too, like if you're having to have these conversations with a medical provider and you're not sure that they're supportive, that's going to be a really fucking hard conversation to have. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Or just like the questions to ask, you know, like, how is this going to affect my sex life? Well, what's your sex life? Right. (sighs) Very sensitive. So I'm going to put that, that little, um, cool brochure in the show notes. Um, it's free to download. It's called Prostate Cancer Tests and Treatment, a guide a guide for gay and bisexual men from Prostate Cancer UK. So cool. Oh, that's something I did want to bring up is also depending on the state where you live or depending on just how you're partnered or whatever, you might not have health insurance. Mm-hmm. We also know that like particularly trans women of color are less employable. You know, they don't get jobs. Mm. And so, yeah, exactly. Like the ways that we access healthcare in this country are flawed. Like if you have to have a job with benefits Mm -hmm. in order to get healthcare, then you're fucked if you're one of these marginalized people. Right. Because you probably don't have a stable job. Yeah. Or like there's like income inequality just in general too. Absolutely. Yeah, there are a ton of barriers Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on a happier note. I do want to say that if there's anything that LGBTQ plus folks are good at, it's finding each other Mm -hmm. and signaling. If you look for hashtags on Instagram or any like social media platform, there are little breadcrumbs right to the people that you want to know and love. There's hashtag queering cancer. There's hashtag LGBTQ cancer survivors, and it really spans like all ages. There is a really, really cool, adorable young person that I love to follow. Their account is at Cool Relatable Cancer Teen, <laughs> which is just the most adorable thing. I love them already. Yeah. Um, and there's just so cool. They do comics and they have participated in like the cancer zine fest and uh which exists there's a cancer zine fest. yes um oh that's so cool this is exactly what i mean about like finding your community right <sighs> but cool relatable cancer teen has made comics and they did this really cute comic I mean, I hate to keep saying cute. I just love them. You know, I'm like a dorky mom lady, but mm-hmm. it's called Melahomos. <laughs> and they say in their description, it's about two disfigured trans facial melanoma patients who found each other online. And like there are people out there who get it and yeah, who might be further along in their journey mm-hmm. who can shepherd you a little a little bit if you're feeling kind of out at sea. Mm-hmm. I was also thinking about how people sometimes like coming out to their families, they might lose relationships within their immediate family or like maybe their parents are shitty and like 
you disown them or whatnot. And then they go through a cancer diagnosis and like the amount of support and help you can get from your immediate family is like so important. And to not have that, it's just huge. Like what you can ask of your friends is very different. You know, my mom came and stayed with me during chemo. My dad came and stayed with me for chunks of time too during treatment. I wouldn't expect a friend to come stay at my house and like watch my child or, you know, whatever. I would. (laughs) I would do it. (laughs) I mean, I would too, but it is harder to to deal with. It's totally true. I just want to address that some people might not have that relationship. So like they need to depend on on friends. Whereas for some people, friendships are more like I'll do a meal train and I'll like come see you for an hour and a half or drive you to an appointment and not necessarily like be there the whole time. Yeah, that like hard time. Totally. But also like, let's name that there are structural supports for immediate family helping you out. And there aren't for chosen family helping you out. Like FMLA doesn't apply to your best friend. Right. Not only that, but if you are LGBTQ, odds are your friends aren't in like super high paying jobs with a ton of leave. Right. And their bosses probably aren't like super keen on letting them go take care of their best buddy for a month. Yeah. You know, like it's just it's a whole cycle of marginalization and queers get the short end of the stick every time. Well, not every time. Every time. I have have some rich ass gay friends is all I'm saying. It's true. It's true. I need them to be seen too. It's true. We don't all, (laughs) we don't all have it as hard, but I'm sure they took their lumps on the way up. Oh, for sure. But. Well, shit. This isn't the kind of conversation I want to be having during Pride Month. I want to be stoked on everything. Yeah. But it's just the sad fact. I mean, we had a rap parade, though. We did. That that made me happy. And there was kink allowed at this rap pride. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that uh, right now. Well, let's admit it. Cancer doesn't discriminate, even though your uncle Kyle might. <laughs> but we have your back here at Cancer for Breakfast. And I know we missed so many good points and uh, there's just so much more to cover. Yeah. This is our little toes are just dipping right in there. That's right. And if you are like a cancer person who makes cancer content and you are part of the queer community, if you are gay or lesbian or trans and you want us to shout you out in our stories or something on Instagram, please let us know. We want to support you. You know, this community can get pretty homogenous. And uh, feel free to send us a letter. We have Cancer for Bitch Fest coming up very soon. I know we've been talking about it often. But we can't get you guys to bitch about anything. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have a few, but I mean. Stop being so positive. I think that people don't, don't realize that we actually mean you can bitch about very shallow stuff Mm -hmm. for cancer for bitch fest we are going to just lay it all on the table um any irk you might have no matter how small that's true and then we have some sex stuff coming up an episode about sex and we've got some experts we have some fucking experts in their fucking field you can believe it yeah and we also take requests if there's a topic you want us to cover say it out loud Mm -hmm. well i'm proud of you for being you amy and also all the queer people who are listening 
If you're not queer and you're listening, I'm less proud of you, but still proud. <laughs> I'm proud of everybody. Just kidding. Um, well, quit it. I like how Steph, you texted me like a week and a half ago and you're like, actually, I don't think I've ever actually asked you this. You're not queer, are yeah, you? It's true. I assume I all like, of my friends are queer. <laughs> I was like, I'm not. But isn't it funny that like. I haven't had to come out with you. Like, I just assumed that you would know that because I'm married to a man that I'm not queer, which is very straight of me. It is very straight of you. But in my world, you have to come out as straight. That's something I require of people. You forgot. (laughs) (laughs) I'm straight. God damn it. I accept. But aren't we all just a little bit gay? I mean, come on. Yes, we are. I'm sorry, listeners, if that comes as a surprise to you. Um, well, happy pride, Steph. Happy pride. Queer little thing. (laughs) 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 Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Any final thoughts? No, 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 no. no. Let your freak flag fly. (laughs) Cancer for Breakfast is hosted by Amy Diles and Stephanie Lejeunesse and produced by Nathan McGeehee. Our theme music is written and performed by Vivivir. Find us at cancerforbreakfast.com, Instagram at cancerforbreakfast, and email at cancerforbreakfast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.